Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Well, thank you, worship team, and uh, good morning to everyone who's those of you who are actually here, those of you who are virtually here, uh, exciting news that next Sunday our uh, attendance uh, limits are for uh, attendance at worship services are increasing significantly, and so uh, definitely looking forward to seeing many more of you out next Sunday. That's exciting news that we've been waiting for. Um, it's my privilege to be speaking this morning and to be part of our ongoing series in which we've been working our way through the Bible book of Hebrews. And as has been mentioned at least a couple of times before by Pastors Doug and Bruce, um, the the book of Hebrews is one of the more daunting passages of Scripture when it comes to speaking and and teaching from it. Um, That's a result of it being virtually wall-to-wall theology all the way through, and much of which is of the deeper than than usual or than normal variety. Preaching from the book of Hebrews is a good reminder to pastors that that preaching from God's word is not only a privilege, but it's also very much a responsibility. Now, uh, we have a lengthy passage with a lot of ground to cover this morning, and so I want us to jump right in. Uh, We're going to be beginning in uh, chapter 5, verse 11, and uh, we're going to be picking up right where Pastor Bruce left off with his message last week. And I just want to set the stage for our passage here this morning by just a really quick summary of what the author of Hebrews had just been covering leading up to it. Previously, he was talking about the fervent prayer life of Jesus Christ, of his sonship, of Jesus' submission to his Father, of the role that suffering played in his obedience, of Jesus Christ as the source of our eternal salvation, and then the deep... uh, the deep uh, or, or uh, the more sufficient high priesthood that Jesus Christ received uh, as was bestowed upon him from God the Father. And so the, the, these deep, profound theological truths are, are just rolling off the, the writer's quill as he's proceeding here. But then all of a sudden, uh, he, he, the author hits the brakes. And in a moment of apparent frustration, he says... There's so much more I'd like to tell you about these profound truths, but there's a problem. And that's where we pick up in verse 11 this morning. Chapter 5, verse 11. We have so much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, there's several things that we can learn from this passage today that are relevant to us as, as Christians. 
Uh, I think, first of all, we see here that it's the expectation of Christians that they will be growing towards maturity. The, the picture that the author paints here is one of an infant or of a baby. And while an infant or a baby is, is cute and adorable, uh, if it doesn't start growing after a period of time, there's something wrong. And the author says here, you folks are adult babies in your faith to the recipients of this letter. And that's neither cute nor adorable anymore. Next, he says, uh, not only is there an expectation that you'll be growing, but there's an expectation that you'll be putting an effort into your growth, into your maturing. He says, we have much more to say to, to you here, but, because you know, but, but we can't because you no longer try to understand. You're no longer trying. You're not making the effort to grow in your faith. Now, this same word that's interpreted here as not trying is going to be, uh, it's going to come up again in, in uh, chapter 6, and in that particular instance, it's, it's translated as the English word lazy. The author is basically saying, you guys have grown lazy in your Christian faith. You're not putting the effort in that's required. Uh, we see in verse 12 that such spiritual laziness also stunts potential. It says, in fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you elementary truths all over again. The author basically says, you believers aren't carrying your weight. By this point in your, in your Christian journey, you should be giving back. But instead, you're, you're still sucking up the resources that should be going to those that are newer in their faith. You ought to be teachers, but you need someone to be teaching you the elementary truths all over again. Let's think about that phrase, all over again. Here we see that this spiritual laziness that's being talked about and not putting an effort into growing and maturing in our faith not only stymies growth and potential in our lives, but we actually begin to start to lose the ground that we had previously gained. It says, you need somebody to teach you these things all over again. They had learned them before, but they'd lost that knowledge. You see, when we quit growing in our walk as Christians, when we quit, uh, you know, stop on that, on that process, that progress towards maturity, we don't just stand still and grow stagnant. We actually start to lose ground. The, the journey to Christian uh, maturity is an uphill journey and there's no parking brakes. And so once we stop moving forward, we actually start losing ground. You should have, you need to learn these truths all over again. The, word, the term elementary, these elementary truths that are being referred to, that term elementary, that word, actually means the beginning or the origin. And so the author is saying here, you, the, this was the starting point for your faith, and you've turned it into the stopping point, into an end point. It was never intended to be the end point, but merely the starting point. And it's the expectation that you'll be pushing forward, that you'll be moving on, that you'll be working past the ABCs of your faith. We see here that, uh, that our diet spiritually is important. Well, they should have graduated to adult or solid food, uh, it says here that they still needed to be fed like babies. 
Now, baby food has its place. But they call it baby food for a reason. Aren't you and, and I both pretty happy that we are no longer physically eating baby food as adults? Baby food. The truth of the matter is that you, a picture of you or of I on the bottle of baby food makes a pretty poor advertisement for Gerber. Nobody wants to look at that. Nobody wants to look at an adult baby on the side of the baby food jar. We need to move on past the baby food. The source of our food is clearly shown here to be God's word. Scriptural truth provides us with the nourishment that we need in order to grow and to mature. But it says here that we need to move on from the milk to the solid food. So, so how do we progress? How do we progress from the elementary teachings, from the milk of our faith to the solid food in, found in Scripture? We're told here that by constant use, we train ourselves. By constant use. The, the, the term constant use there. Uh, speaks of an established practice or a habit that requires effort, effort and, and perseverance and diligence. It's the opposite of laziness. The term uh, train here is actually, the Greek word there is, it, it's the same word that we get our English word gymnasium from. It's an athletic term. It spoke of the, the diligent training that the, the athletes needed back in those days to, in preparation for those Greek games. That they entered. The bottom line here is that we can't grow and mature without a steady diet of, the, of Scripture and of the Word of God. By constant use, we train ourselves. Finally, we see that the result of this, this regular diet, this uh, digesting of the solid food of God's Word, the result of this constant use and training, the, the uh, byproduct of of maturity is the ability to distinguish or to discern, to know the difference between good and evil. In all of those various situations and subtleties in life as things come to us, to be able to discern between good and evil. Many of those situations which tend to confuse and deceive uh, adult baby Christians. The author continues on in chapter 6, verse 1, with his call towards maturity, where it says, Therefore, in light of what I've just said, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be, and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Now the phrase that we see in verse 1, uh, be taken forward to maturity, is, is a little bit of a, a confusing or a misleading translation. Uh, be taken forward, it almost sounds like some other force is just going to come along and carry us forward to maturity without much uh, responsibility or effort required on our part. But this word here actually carries with it uh, the sense of enduring the rigor of a thing. I think the, the, new, Amer uh, the new American Standard Bible uh, got it a little more 
uh, closely, a little more correctly when it translates this as, let us press on to maturity. Let us press on. See, the foundation has already been laid, but let's press on and build upon that foundation. Let's keep moving forward. Now, notice that the author here, although he's just chastised these readers for their spiritual immaturity and for the fact that they've lost ground, he expresses here optimism that they will, in fact, press on and move towards maturity. This brings us now to, to, no doubt, the most difficult section of this passage, found in verses 4 through 8. Let's read that. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain after falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it was farmed, receive the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, this is widely considered to be a difficult passage, uh, in part because there's no consensus on its interpretation, but also because one of those interpretations seems to uh, set it up against other teachings in Scripture. Basically, uh, there are three sort of major interpretations that, that people tend to land into one of these three camps on. The first interpretation here is that this is just a hypothetical warning. Not, a liter- not meant to be literal. It, uh, the, the argument goes that this is just meant to motivate people on to further effort in their faith, to kind of, in a sense, scare them straight. But it's not an actual reality being talked about here. Now, personally, I think that this uh, interpretation has the, the weakest of the three arguments. Um, if, if this was, in fact, a, a hypothetical argument or warning, and the people knew that, then the warning loses most of its, uh, of its effectiveness or its um, seriousness, its effect. On the other hand, if this is a hypothetical warning and the people are led to believe that it's actually true, actually real, then I think there's an integrity issue on the part of the author who, in a sense, has deceived his, his listeners. The second interpretation here is that this is describing real Christians who have truly been saved, but who have now lost that salvation, lost their salvation as a result of falling away. Now, what's problematic with this interpretation is the number of other passages in Scripture that seem to speak against this possibility. Just to name a few... Those would include, a little later in this book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, verse 25, the same author says this, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Then in John 6, verses 37 to 40, Jesus also said, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will give I will never drive away, 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 1, verses 4 through 6, In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Now, proponents of interpretation number, number two will, will counter with some other verses in addition to this one that, that cause us to stop and ponder. Uh, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, as he's interpreting his parable of the sower and the seed to his disciples, he says, there are those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they will fall away. They believe for a while, but they'll fall away. Now, the third interpretation, and I will say that this is the one that I personally subscribe to, uh, is that these individuals here have experienced significant exposure to the teaching about Jesus and Jesus being the Messiah, but who have chosen, have come to a certain point where they've made a choice and they've chosen to turn away from this teaching and go back to their old beliefs, in this case, Judaism. Uh, in other words, these are unbelievers who have been taught about Jesus, who have experienced many of the spiritual blessings of, of living in, among this community of believers, but who now have chosen to, to reject this teaching, this path, and return to their old beliefs, and, and in the process, rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, the, the stakes in this debate are exceedingly high. What's at play here is the momentous question, can Christians lose their salvation? Now, the, the doctrine of eternal security is one that has been discussed and debated for hundreds of years in Christian circles. And so, on the one hand, you know, where do we go from here? It's, it's unlikely that we are going to definitively um, come to a conclusion on a debate that's been raging within Christendom for hundreds of years and for centuries. On the other hand, we want to be faithful with this passage of Scripture that's in front of us today in Hebrews. So let's just jump into that passage and take a little bit closer look at it. Now, I think the two key questions in play here as we, as we try to evaluate this passage in light of these three uh, interpretations is, number one, were these people that are being described, were they actual true believers? Were they truly saved? That's question number one. And then question number two would be, what exactly is this falling away that's being described here? Now, one of the difficulties or the, the challenges, the obstacles that those in the third interpretation camp, those that say these weren't actually true believers, one of the obstacles that they face is 
The list of, of spiritual experiences in verses 4 and 5, that lists just so many different dynamics that these, that these folks in question had apparently experienced before their falling away. The author says here that they had been enlightened, that they had tasted the heavenly gift, that they'd shared in the Holy Spirit, that they'd tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. And that's quite a list. A list that at first glance certainly seems to indicate that these must have been genuine Christians that are being referred to here. But let's take a little closer look at this list as it's described and see if it stands up, uh, if it's quite as cut and dried as it appears at first glance. Now the first descriptor of the individuals recorded here is that they had once been enlightened. So doesn't being enlightened, isn't that an indicator of, of actually being saved, of being a true Christian, that you've been enlightened? Well, this, this term, this actually, the exact same word is used in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 9. And there that word is used this way. It says, Jesus is being talked about as being the, the true light. And it says that the true light that Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone in the world. Jesus Christ is, has, as the true light, has enlightened the world. But as we know, of course, not everybody in the world responds to that enlightenment in the same way. Next we see here that, uh, and, and we're going to examine as a group, the three different spiritual dynamics that are all prefaced by the word tasted. The individuals in, test, in question here have, are said to have tasted of the heavenly gift. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and have tasted of the power of the coming age. Now the Greek word translated tasted here is actually used in, in two different ways in scripture. On the one hand, it, it's used of situations where where the person has fully accepted and ex or experienced whatever it is in question. This is the same word that's used of Jesus where it says that he tasted death for all humanity. Something that he obviously experienced in full. On the other hand, this is also the exact same word that's, that's used in Matthew 27, verse 34, where we're told that during his crucifixion, as he's hanging on the cross, the Roman soldiers who were standing around at the base of, of the cross offered Jesus a mixture of wine and gall to drink. A mixture that was specifically designed to dull pain. And it says there in that passage that when Jesus tasted it, when it touched his lips, he refused to drink it. And so it's very possible that what's, what's described here as being tasted touched the lips was, was, was briefly encountered, but was ultimately rejected in the same way that the wine with the gall in it was. The final and, and possibly most significant uh, experience to try to understand here is the experience where the, these individuals are said to have shared in the Holy Spirit. Sounds uh, very much like they must be Christians at that point. The key here, I think, again, is to really take a close look at that word shared. 
Once again, similar to the word tasted, the Greek word shared is used in two different ways in Scripture. On the one hand, it's used in situations where the, the, folk, the people being talked about that shared something were full partakers, that, had, that fully experienced whatever it was that was in discussion there. On the other hand, There's points where it talks about associates or companions who, while in the same proximity, did not fully partake of the experience. They were around it, but they weren't full partakers in it. We see an example of this in Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. And there it said that the angels are the companions of Jesus. Now, the word companions is the same Greek word as the, as the word shared that we're looking at. The angels were companions of Jesus. Now, it's true that uh, the angels lived in somewhat in proximity with Jesus. They shared somewhat of the experience of being in, the hev- being in heaven, being in, in proximity with God the Father. But the whole point of this passage in Hebrews 1.9 is to demonstrate the the superiority of Jesus over the angels. And so while they had some things in common, while they shared some inferior. And so I think in the same way, it's very possible that the individuals being described here, well, fellow companions and associates, uh, present among this community of believers where the Holy Spirit is manifesting himself, were not full partakers in the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The gravity of the author's warning ramps up significantly when he declares here that it's not just difficult, it's not just unlikely, but it's actually impossible for those individuals being described here who fall away, uh, for them to ever return once again to repentance. Due to the fact that the author says that in the process of falling away, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, rejecting the very provision that God has made for their salvation. So so what is this falling away that's being described here in verse 6? Well, regardless of where you stand on the debate whether, whether or not these were actually true believers, genuine Christians or not, I think it's clear from the context that what's not being talked about here is spiritual backsliding. If that were the case, then the original readers of this passage would sit condemned. The author had just finished chastising them for spiritual immaturity, immaturity and laziness, for not trying to grow. He had just finished describing how they had actually lost ground spiritually, the very definition of backsliding. And yet, at the same time, he expresses optimism that these individuals will not experience this falling away that he's talking about, that's been described. See, what's being referred to here is a complete, willful abandonment of the faith. These aren't Christians who, in a moment of weakness or carelessness or temporary apathy, have fallen into sin. One commentator um, put it this way, summarized it this way. 
He said, the author speaks not here of theft or perjury, of murder, drunkenness, or adultery, but rather of a total defection or falling away from the faith and from the gospel. When a sinner offends God not in some one thing, but entirely renounces his grace. This is the difference between the disciples Peter and Judas. Peter, on the one hand, even though in a time of fear and weakness, he denied his Lord three times, his belief in his heart, his heart's belief never wavered, and he was ultimately forgiven and restored into fellowship. Judas, on the other hand, while certainly a companion and an associate living in proximity with Jesus, was an outlier throughout. Never ever all in, stealing money out of the bag until ultimately he makes the decision to to betray Jesus and walk away completely. The uh, process, or the point of salvation is a bit of a mystery for us. The Bible says that we people tend to judge by outward appearances, but God sees and determines the, the inner being, that he sees the heart. He knows what's actually going on on the inside, not just on the outside. Definitively pinpointing the point of salvation is beyond our capacity as humans. We know that it requires more than just an intellectual level of belief. The author James, the brother of Jesus, in his treatise on why uh, faith needs to be accompanied by works, uh, he said, he put it this way, he said, you believe in God? Good for you. Even the demons believe in God, and at least they tremble. So he's saying just intellectual assent, that level of belief isn't good enough to save. It has, to be, it has to move into the realm of genuine saving faith, and, at, and God is the one that determines that point and sees that in, the, in our hearts. So in that, in that, in that effect, it's, it's possible to believe on an intellectual level but not truly be saved. The section concludes with an illustration here reminiscent of Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed that's recorded in Matthew 13. The rain falls on both sets of ground, but one produces good crops, while the other yields thorns and and thistles. One harvest is beneficial to the farmer, and one is totally useless. So what is the value of the warnings in verses 4 through 8 for us? Well, on the one hand, I think what we don't do is start doubting our salvation every time we fall into sin. On the other hand, I don't think the point is to try to define the edge of the cliff so, so precisely that we try to live our lives walking along the razor edge of that cliff. I think the challenge for us, the, the, the lesson for us is to not even come close to that cliff, to deal with our sin, to to repent of sin, to regain quickly ground that's been lost, to, to constantly train and, and train ourselves and, and use and study and dig into the Word of God so that we're being spiritually fed and, and growing towards maturity. The passage continues on in verse 9, and once again we see the author moving from, from warning to, to encouragement. 
Let's read, uh, starting in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your, your work and your love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what, we hope, what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now, notice the, the author's statement here in verse 9, that we are convinced of better things in your case. These better things being better than this falling away, this apostasy that's just been described previously. And then notice that the, the author says, refers to these better things as things that, that have, uh, have to do with salvation. I think that's, that's a key point there to see. Things that have to do with salvation. Um, so, if, that, if these better things have to do with true salvation, then I think it follows logically that these worse things... The, this falling away, this apostasy that's been described previously, don't have to do. They're not associated with. They're not a byproduct of true faith. Another observation in this section here is that we notice in verse 10 that we're reminded that God is not unjust. And I think, I think in this context, that's, a, that's an important uh, statement. In this context of some falling away and some losing their faith or, or, or losing this level of belief of being, some being saved, some not being saved, God is not unjust. No one will ever be able to stand before God one day and say that they have been dealt with unfairly, that God has played favorites, that he, God has ruled unjustly, immorally uh, in, in there or unethically in, in the judgment that, that they have received from God. We see here that uh, our good works and our love for God is remembered by him. Uh, th that's an encouraging thing, right? Like what we do for God and our love for him is remembered by him. This is, this is the, the storing up the treasures in heaven. It's, it's in the bank. God, God sees it and God remembers. Nothing done with proper motivation for God is ever done in vain. God sees it. God remembers um, just FYI, in verse 12 here, where the author says, we don't want you to become lazy, That's, that word there is the very same word that we saw earlier in chapter 5, where uh, the, the people were being chastised for not trying to understand. Same word, not trying and laziness. Lastly, the author calls on God's people to persevere, once again, to press on, to to exercise patience, to continue on until this inheritance that's been promised to them is fully realized. Quickly, the final section of our passage begins in verse 13, reading, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms that what is said 
confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Continuing on in verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Long passage, we're going to just touch on it fairly briefly here. But I think it's, I think it's important to note that after, after this section in verses 4 to 8 that could radically shake a believer's uh, faith and confidence in their salvation, the author moves on here to, to bolster that faith, to bolster that confidence, to reinforce that sense of, of security that they have in their relationship with God and in their salvation. And he does that by pointing out the unassailable nature of God's promises to those who's, who are waiting for the inheritance that he has promised them. The readers here are reminded that God not only made these promises, but he sealed them, making them legally binding with an oath. He swore by himself as there was nothing greater, no one greater for him to appeal to. No higher authority. And so he, he, we have God's word on it. We have this oath, this legally binding component to it. And then if that's not enough, the author reminds us that because of who God is, in his very essence and nature, it is literally impossible for God to lie. So we have these two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath, then combined with the fact that it is literally impossible for God to lie. And so this, when fully grasped, gives us this, this confidence, this assurance in what God has promised those that love him. It's uh, referred to as an anchor here. And once these truths are grasped, the, the flukes of this anchor are driven solidly, deeply into the bedrock of the very essence and character of who God is, acting as an anchor for our souls. It's a beautiful picture. God wants us to be assured of our salvation. Our passage this morning closes with a reference to Jesus as the ultimate high priest. This mysterious Melchizedek is referenced again, and we'll leave that for next week. And uh, we're reminded that Jesus is the forerunner. He has gone on ahead of us in, in all that God has promised for his children. Jesus uh, stated it so clearly in John 14, verses 2 and 3, where he said, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Of this, we can be certain, because we've got his word on it. Anyhow, thank you folks for coming here this morning. Have a great week. I look forward to seeing uh, many more faces in the audience next week as the tenants' li uh, limits are lifted. And uh, so go in peace.
and God bless.